Join the Hamden County Sheriff's Office medical team. We offer professional medical and mental health care during and after incarceration, following a revered public health model. We're hiring for nursing and supervisory roles, offering a less hectic case than hospitals, a state pension, benefits, and potential retirement after 20 years. Our firm but fair approach to corrections has been emulated nationwide. We're not your average law enforcement agency. Visit our website to learn more. The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Legislation and adjudication must follow and conform to the progress of society. Abraham Lincoln. I'm Lisa Riley, and we're here each week to share narratives of people and programs and resources both inside and outside the criminal justice system, the reality of life behind the wall, the stigmas that surround those who have been impacted by the justice system, and the inspiring stories that prove that failure isn't final. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to this week's The Hustler Files. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Joe LaFrada. Joe came to us by way of the Hamden County Sheriff's Office. And Joe, why don't you give us sort of the 30,000-foot view of your career and, and background? Because I have your resume, and it would take us about two days to go through it line item by line item. (laughs) <laughs> I appreciate that. That's very flattering. But from a 30,000-foot view, I am uh, a trained clinician. I'm a licensed mental health counselor here in the state of Massachusetts and uh, worked in that field for a number of years. I worked behind the wall in, in a prison environment. I worked in the community in a private practice. I've worked with in the old DYS system and uh, recently retired from the federal probation system. I, was, uh, I transitioned from working in the clinical realm uh, to the law enforcement field uh, as a as a federal probation officer. And you have degrees in the clinical psychology realm, correct? I do. Master's of Science in Counseling Psychology, uh, which qualified me to take the um, licensed mental health counselor exam and be certified in the state of Massachusetts. So let's start with probation versus parole. It's not a conversation we've had with anyone yet, and um, I'm excited that we can talk about that a little bit because I think it's really important and I think there probably is some crossover and sometimes there's a little confusion on what is probation and what is parole. Do you want to walk us through that? Uh, absolutely. In, in different systems, uh, there's different ways of looking at it too, right? So the federal system is very different from the state system in this regard. Uh, I'll talk about the state system first because that's probably what most people are familiar with. And in the state system, Probation um, generally is a sentence that's given to folks um, either in lieu of going to custody or post uh, being in custody where they're under the supervision of the probation office uh, in a particular court. Parole is very different in the sense that uh, parole is granted to somebody that is in custody and uh, they are basically released conditionally and uh, at a certain point in their sentence. Uh, At that point, they're under supervision 
of the parole office uh, in the state of Massachusetts and can uh, be brought back into custody for any violations. So when someone says that they're going to meet with their probation officer, that means that someone like yourself and they haven't served time behind the wall but they have been adjudicated by a court or a judge and offered a sentence. Yes, in many instances, they haven't served time. They've just been given a straight probationary sentence. In some instances, probation was sort of an on and after sentence. So if somebody gets a custodial sentence of a particular time frame, after that time frame, some local courts will impose a probation sentence on and after that, after that uh, period of incarceration. So they may have served some time. So based on the research I did earlier, there's about 2.9 million people on probation in the U.S. and about 800,000 on parole. Does that sound right to you? I'm going to trust your numbers, yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of people on probation. I mean, our, our criminal justice system as it is, behind the wall, there's about 2 million people at any given time. So to have 2.9 million people on probation, how does a judge sit and and make that decision? Is it based on their age? Is it based on just past criminal activity? You know, I mean, that's if, if we put those 2.9 million people in jail, we'd have almost 5 million people behind the wall. Exactly. And I think that... Um... The thing to really know and and understand is that the criminal justice system as a whole has really shifted in the last uh, probably 20 years, I would say, and really is focused on on risk-based sort of focus where you look at what level of risk somebody is to the community. And and I'd venture to guess that the the large number of the percentage of folks that you mentioned that were on probation are fairly low-risk individuals. The majority of folks that that are on probation, very likely are on an administrative type probation where they report to the probation officer either by phone or once a week into the office, uh, are on shorter terms of probation, not necessarily really lengthy terms of probation. I think the, the more, for lack of a better term, serious or seasoned criminals, folks that have a longer criminal history, are the ones that would be deemed at higher risk. Now, there are plenty of instruments to make those determinations, and there are plenty of probation offices around the country that utilize risk instruments to determine who's at higher risk to recidivate and be back in place back into custody. So you use an assessment tool for this risk assessment. And that's sort of interesting because we've had conversations on the show with some of our sheriff's offices. So they use an assessment tool when someone comes and is in the intake process at the jail. And I guess this also applies to state and federal prisons as well. Um, So is your risk assessment similar to what is done behind the wall? I'd say it's pretty similar, yes. Um, you know, most risk assessment, risk assessment systems, I guess you'd call them, uh, utilize a number of static factors and some dynamic factors that they look at to make a determination. You know, those static factors are things that, that don't change, right, can't change. Uh, you can't change somebody's criminal history. What it, it is what it is, right? They've been arrested X number of times. That's not going to change in that moment when you're making that assessment. And then there are those dynamic things, right, whether or not they're employed, whether or not uh, they, they have uh, support around them, whether or not they're married. Uh, those are the dynamic factors that can increase or decrease somebody's level of risk in the community. That's really interesting. So criminal justice system isn't just slapping a probation on somebody that stole something or got arrested for drugs or carrying a gun, but they're actually going through this assessment to see, you know, are they 
worthy of getting a probation to stay out in the community or do they need to go behind the wall because they need some other help to help them acclimate so when they come back into the community they're in a better place? The risk assessment that's typically used uh, on the probation end of things is done after the, when the person is placed on probation. And it's usually deter- used to determine how much contact a probation officer should have with somebody and what that contact should look like, what it should be focused on. So a lot of these risk assessments are also paired with looking at the person's needs. So as you look at somebody's level of risk, you're paying attention to their criminal history, you're paying attention to a lot of, like I said, those static and dynamic factors, but you're also paying attention to what those what that person's needs are. Do they have a substance use disorder, right? That that would become a need. Maybe they have they have some mental health issues, that would become a need. Maybe they have a history of poor, poor employment, right? So maybe that becomes a need. So you start to identify those things, and those needs become the talking points when the probation officer is actually meeting with the individual. The risk level is really what's determining that level of contact, right? How, how intense should that contact be? Should they be meeting with somebody every week? Should they be meeting with every, somebody every month or maybe just quarterly? That's interesting. So it's really then dependent on whomever is standing in front of a judge that they had an attorney that did some kind of a risk assessment on them before they became sentenced because that should play into their sentencing, correct? Well, I'll speak to the federal system because that's been my experience uh, for 20-plus years. Um, And I know that many of the state systems are similar. And the way that the federal system works is when somebody is either pleads guilty or is found guilty, a pre-sentence report is prepared for for that individual. And that pre-sentence report draws information from that individual as well as from the investigation to make determinations for the court about what they're dealing with, right? So the court is when they sit with that person for sentencing, whether they're going to make a sentence, a custodial sentence, or they're going to make a probationary sentence, they've got information to make recommendations to that individual about what they should be doing when they're in custody, what they should be doing when they're out of custody and, and on probation or under the supervision of the probation office. And all those factors come into play in that pre-sentence report. I'm just curious, what percentage in your mind, it doesn't have to be an exact percentage, but what do you think the, the percentages of juveniles that are on probation that come through the court systems that are, you know, in a place where probation is really better for them than going behind the wall? It's a hard, it's a hard number to put. Um, you know, having worked in what was the DYS system, now DCF system in the state of Massachusetts, you know, I, I worked in a residential facility for kids in a clinical capacity. I, actually, I worked in a residential and clinical capacity as I was getting my degree, I was I was a residential worker, and then when I got my degree, I was a, a clinician inside of a residential program. And the majority of the kids that I saw inside those programs back in the early 90s, early to mid-90s, were kids that didn't have support, were kids that needed somebody to look up to, were kids that didn't have the structure that was necessary for them to thrive. So it's hard to say which level of kids would be better off being in a probation sentence versus being placed in a custodial sentence. Kids placed in a custodial sentence is never a great thing. And can you drill down on that a little bit for us? So what does that custodial sentence actually look like? I think it's different for for different kids. There are different custodial situations in the state of Massachusetts. Uh, from, From my experience, and again, this is 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago at this point, 
you know, there were different types of facilities that they would place kids in, but there were levels that level of levels of security that were pretty high, right? And um, so it's very much like a prison type environment, but for for juveniles. Um, and if you start to get above the age of 18, uh, between 18 and 21, if, or 22, I believe it was at the time, you know, that you're still considered a juvenile. You could be in these places, but depending on on the severity of your crime or the way that you're acting inside those facilities, it's going to make a difference as to what level of security they put you in. I love these conversations because they're so enlightening, and I think it's always important that we share and we educate, and you have that hands-on experience. So I'm really grateful that you're here to chat about this today. But we need to take a quick break. So, Joe, if you can stick around a little bit and listeners grab another cup of coffee, we'll be right back. You're listening to this week's The Hustler Files. Hello, this is Patrick Kaling, Sheriff of Hampshire County. This year, my office received the prestigious Fatherhood Award from the Children's Trust, a state child abuse prevention agency, for our work with the Nurturing Fathers Program. We are proud of our partnership with the Children's Trust and firmly believe that strong, safe families help build strong, safe communities. If you're interested in joining our award-winning team, visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com, submit an application online, or call and ask for our HR department. Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. I'm Lisa Riley, and if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Joe LaFrata. Joe is a retired Deputy Chief U.S. Probation Officer in Massachusetts. He has 30 years of experience working with an adjudicated population and in the criminal justice field. And we were just chatting in the first half of the show about probation, parole, juveniles, kind of what the the static factors and dynamic factors as Joe calls them, that are part of the risk assessment. But I want to change gears a little bit. I was going through Joe's resume, and uh, he has quite a resume, as I said earlier in the show. But one of the things that really caught my eye, and it is a discussion that we have never had on this show to date, is that Joe sort of fell into a specialty of working with sex offenders. And it's a very touchy subject, as I'm sure everyone is aware. So, Joe, why don't you give us a little bit of that 30,000 vantage point of how you fell into becoming an expert in the sex offender criminal justice space? Well, I, I started working in the sex offender space really as an intern when I was getting my master's degree and, and starting to train to become a clinician. And program director in the program that I was working with at the time said, you can sit in and observe groups if you'd like to observe them. And if you do, it's a specialty that basically you'll be able to write your own ticket going forward if you if you can do the work and you think that you can deal with the population. I got in and I, at the time it was I was working with kids and I was working with kids who had committed sex offenses and they were all adjudicated for the sex offenses and just listening to the stories that they had and knowing how I was able to help them figure out why they did what they did, figure out a way to not do it again. That was, to me, that had meaning to it to prevent any future victims. What did you find was sort of the common thread amongst these juveniles for their sex offenses? I'm not sure that there is a common thread because there's so many different types of 
sex offenses that, that can occur, right? And part of what you deal with in that circumstance and situation, and especially with juveniles, and I've also worked with adults as well, and behind the wall, working with sex offenders behind the wall. I think there's, there's no real sort of common thing. Uh, you, you hear a lot of folks talk about power and control in those situations, that it's about power. Theories that focus on somebody's understanding or relationship with children or their inability to relate to adults so they relate to children better. That's why they commit offenses against children. There's a multitude of theories that try to explain this behavior. But in the end, the person committed the crime and they need to figure out how to not do it again because in the majority of cases, they're going to be back on the street again. So I have so many questions running through my head right now. When someone has been adjudicated with a sex offense as a juvenile, does that eventually come off their record or does that follow them like it does an adult? follows them now. The juveniles register, the offenses are registrable offenses. The length of time that they register for isn't as long in some cases as adults, but it's with them. And uh, depending on the severity of the offense and how it's charged, it could definitely be on their record for, for a very long time. And that affects everything in their life, right? Where they live, the community they can go to, the, the, jobs, the jobs. Wow. Yes. Have you seen change in people who have been in your therapy classes that, you know, were accused and convicted of sex offenses? Uh, I have. I've seen change in folks, uh, both in the treatment environment and as a probation officer. Uh, As a probation officer in the federal system, we dealt with folks who had historical sex offense charges, right? They They had a prior sex offense in their history, and we had folks that were charged with new sex offenses, uh, child porn cases that were, were more prevalent in the federal system. So, I've, But I've seen people work to make changes to their lives so that they don't do this again. There's always a lot of back and forth, and you can go online and just read article after article. Some people actually believe it's genetic. What do you think? I have a hard time with that. Um, I'm not sure I believe in that. <laughs> okay. No, that's it, it's opinion-based, and, and you, yeah, you yeah. have a lot of experience in this space. Do you think that a traumatized childhood can lead to becoming a sex offender? I think trauma is definitely a risk factor, and we talked about risk factors earlier, right? Trauma is definitely a risk factor that could contribute to somebody committing a sex crime for certain. I think what you find is people deal with traumas differently. Some people might drink, some people might commit crimes, some people might be angry and assault people, some people might commit a sex offense. And do you think sex offenders are treated differently behind the wall when they're imprisoned? Oh, absolutely. And and in fact, they treat each other differently. A complete surprise to me to work in a state prison facility uh, that housed strictly sex offenders, only sex offenders, and to see sort of the pecking order amongst the sex offender population themselves. That's fascinating. I'm sure we could do a whole show on that subject. And I'm guessing that the gang community within prisons must look very different if you're in an all-sex offender community behind the wall. Yeah, I'm not sure sure there's gang, but there's definitely groups, right? You know, a group of uh, whether it's uh, adult rapists, child molesters, child porn, incestuous sex offenders, you you name it, there's, there's definitely groups. I wouldn't have thought we could drill down to that many different groups just with, within one community. But let's move on to a, a little bit of a lighter subject, um, something you're doing these days. And I appreciate you talking about that because, like I said earlier, we have not touched on that subject, and it's a hard subject. But I think you gave us enough enlightenment on that, and, and I'm very grateful for that. But let's go down a little bit of a lighter road. You're currently working 
as the head of mentors and program outreach with a group called Recovery Works um, based out of Boston, Massachusetts. Could you share a little bit about that with us? Absolutely. Um, it's a wonderful transition from the federal system to be, be a part of Recovery Works. We are a program that's based in Boston out of the Mass General Hospital, but we're a completely virtual program. In fact, we don't even have space in the Mass General Hospital. What we do is we support folks that are in recovery in their search for employment. We work to empower them, find employment for themselves, and we support them to get that employment, but also maintain that employment. That's wonderful. And I've been on the website, so all the board members and all the people that are on the team, everything is virtual. Everything is virtual. We're a five-year program that offers services for all of our participants, and the services that we provide are mentorship, career coaching, educational and skill-based workshops and groups, and our goal is to help folks find work and maintain that employment and to be successful in that. And we've had a few other employers on the show during this past year, and it's always interesting to hear the types of companies that are starting to step up and employ people who have criminal justice involved backgrounds. So are they just a lot of local to New England companies or is your is your reach going beyond the New England footprint? So what's interesting about us is that we work to create partnerships, whether it be with clinics and treatment centers across the Commonwealth, but also with employers. We don't have a cache of jobs sitting there waiting, or we don't have specific employers that call us up and say, hey, do you have anybody that can do job X? Um, What we do is we focus on uh, the individual participant, and what we do with that individual is we help them sort of tailor their job search. And then what they do is they get out there and they try to find the right company for them. If that individual wants us to support them openly, they can go and let that agency know that they're applying to, they can go and let that agency know that they're part of Recovery Works and we will support them in their quest to get that job. And we can let the agency know that we're here to support them, right? Gives the employer a bit of comfort in knowing that candidate has additional support to help them in times of need. That's wonderful. I noticed, yeah, that you have anti-stigma workshops, career-focused workshops. So how many formerly incarcerated or probationary people come to Recovery Works on an ongoing basis? So I'd say the majority of the folks that we that we have in Recovery Works have in some way, shape, or form been touched by law enforcement, whether that means they were in custody, arrested, or charged in some way, shape, or form. That's just the population, right? I mean, it's if you're involved in that in that space and, and you're you're using substances and using them readily, it's almost inevitable that you're going to have a run-in with law enforcement. So I'd say the majority of our folks, in one way, shape, or form, law enforcement involved, presently or previously. Well, I love that this program exists. It's an amazing resource, and I think resources are still too few and far between for people that are returning whether it's through reentry or they're on probation. Does Recovery Works also support family members? Family members, I think what our, our goal is is to help the person integrate back with their family as best we can, right? And just facilitate that. It's not our role clinically. We're not a clinical program. So it's not our role to help the person's family get back involved with this individual, have this individual get back involved with the family. If that's a collateral result of them being sober, being employed, uh, and having long-term employment, then that's a beautiful end result. That's wonderful too, because again, sometimes I think there are so many family members out there that they have someone who ends up justice involved and they don't know where to turn. They don't know who to go to. They don't know who they can trust. They don't know what support system and resources are there for them. So I'm 
I loved hearing about Recovery Works and um, that you're doing some work with them. So we're going to run out of time, sadly. The show always goes way too fast. But I ask all of our guests a final question, and I don't prepare you for this because we like a nice, transparent, honest answer. But I believe we all have life assignments, and they can change as we have our life journey. But what at this point in your life, Joe, and you've had quite a life so far from what I could see on paper and talking to you. What do you think your life assignment has been or, or is in this moment? Wow. That's a pretty, that's a pretty deep question. Um, I think for me, it's, it's, it's really, um, it's been trying to give back to people that are less fortunate than I've been. I, I, I know that, um, I, I grew up in, uh, in a part of the state that, I could have been on either side of this desk that I sat at for 20 years. And um, I was fortunate enough to make good decisions and have people around me that supported me that I made the right decisions at the right time. And um, I know some people aren't as fortunate. So if I can be there to help some of the people that I interact with and come across in my life uh, to, to support them so that they can make those right decisions for themselves, then that, that makes me feel good. Well, you've had a very admirable career from what I can read and in talking to you. And so I think you've probably made an impact on a lot of people whose paths have crossed yours over the years. And we're out of time. So I'm going to say thank you, Joe, for joining us. Um, I hope we get to talk again in the future. I love what you've done. I love that you're still involved even in your retirement. And uh, thank you again for joining us today on The Hustler Files. Lisa, thank you. And uh, I, I encourage people to go to therecoveryworks.org. And that's great because I was going to ask you for that website, so you beat me to it. All right, Joe, thank you so much. Listeners, stay put because we've still got a wrap-up this week, and we'll be right back. Franklin County has a vibrant history of farming. At the Franklin County House of Correction, we bring that history to life with education and vocational programs around farming and gardening. Incarcerated men and women learn to work an active organic garden. Best of all, they harvest, they send home to help support and feed their families. This is Sheriff Chris Donnellan, and I can't think of better therapy than farming and feeding your family. That's the history of Franklin County, and we honor it at the Sheriff's Office every day. We are back, and our thoughts for this week come from Jay Shetty, who is an author, podcaster, speaker, and coach. Accepting who you are today in this moment is the kindest thing you can do for your past, future, and present self. Number one, be really conscious about who you keep and let go in your life. Just because you have a history doesn't mean you have to force a future. Two, take care of your body and mind like your life depends on it, because it does. Three, it's okay to ask for help or a hug. If you're trying to be there for others, it's easy to forget you also need to be held and embraced emotionally. Four, don't buy into your own hype. Stay connected to why you started and remain a humble student of life. If you forget this, life will remind you. Five, people will always try to tear you down no matter your intention. Trust that the people that know you love you and invest deeply in those relationships to protect yourself. And lastly, different levels come with different problems. Focus on developing new skills and strengths because they will lead to peace. 
And that's a wrap on this week's The Hustler Files. Thank you to our guests and advertisers for their continuing support. You can find all of our shows on the whmp.com podcast page or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files. Hustler Files.